This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Early on in the pandemic, we reported the huge increase in the number of people getting pets to help them through the isolation of lockdown. The increased demand led to shortages and price hikes and also worries that many of those animals may be abandoned as life gets back to normal. Well, now there is another problem. Long waits to see a veterinarian when those pets need medical attention. What is your experience? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Have you had trouble getting in to see a vet? Now, let's bring in Dr. Albert Wimmers, who is the past president of the Ontario Veterinary Medical Association and a practicing veterinarian at the Limestone Valley Animal Hospital in Burlington. Dr. Enid Stiles, immediate past president of the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association. And our colleague, Leanne Wright, who's the senior VP communications at Zoomer Media. And she brought this story to our attention after she waited outside for six hours to get into a vet emergency with her cat, Lulu. Hi, everyone. Hi, Leanne. Hi, Libby. Uh, Leanne, why don't we start with you and just tell us your experience. First of all, how is Lulu? Lulu is uh, back to her sometimes frisky, sometimes sleepy self. I'm very <laughs> pleased to say, and I'm very thankful, um, before I tell my story, uh, to all of the vets uh, who gave her you know, wonderful uh, medical services and, and support um, during the past week. So thank you to all of them. Oh. Um, but I did, I did, uh, so I noticed that, uh, my, my kitty Lulu, she's a, a senior or a Zoomer kitty. She's 12 <laughs> years old. <laughs> she's sitting right next to me right now, actually. Um, I noticed that she was experiencing some oral discomfort whenever she ate. She would whack her cheek and it was, uh, getting increasingly obvious, um, over the past several weeks. Uh, until one day where she was hitting her cheek so hard that it started to bleed. So I wasn't sure if it was a, a loose tooth or an abscess. And um, I started calling uh, around to various uh, veterinarian clinics. And um, she's had regular vets over the years, but not, not, she doesn't have, let's say she doesn't have like a, a GP. So I called uh, a various various vets in my neighborhood um, to which I could walk, and most of them were booking two, three weeks out. Uh, but it was increasingly obvious that she was in more and more pain, so I took her to the uh, local uh, hospital, which is a couple of blocks away from, from where I live. I actually called them first and told them to describe the situation, and they called me back pretty quickly and said that her case was approved and I could bring her over. Um, so I walked her over. It was about, I would say, around seven o'clock, eight o'clock on a, on Friday, and they took her in right away. I have, have the little carry case. They took in the carrying case, and I waited outside. Uh, they were in regular touch with me, but I waited outside until about two thirty in the morning, two thirty three in the morning, uh, when I finally picked her up and and could take her home. Um, I did also. Before I took her to the hospital, I did find one vet that would have, that could see her the following day. So I did do a follow-up after the emergency trip to this vet. I didn't particularly like this person's bedside manner, and uh, so I. Um, but I was able to administer antibiotics throughout the course of the week, which is what they gave me at the emergency clinic, until I could take her to my sister's veterinarian um, yesterday. So, so it's like six, once you get to emerge, uh, six hours, uh, that's almost like what you have to uh, wait, wait in a for, hospital. For a hospital, yeah. yeah. There was there were a couple puppies waiting. One, had, uh, one needed uh, some attention after an allergic reaction. There was a, an, elder, an elder dog. There were um, 
people who came in to resuscitate kittens, but we all had to wait outside, of course, during due to COVID protocols. Um, and uh, but yeah, it was it was a long wait. <laughs> it was a long wait. Let's bring in our veterinarians. Uh, welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining us. Is that a familiar story, Doctor Albert Wimmers? Yes, unfortunately it is. And we're hearing stories uh, sometimes, you know, 12 and, and 16 hours, depending on how heavy the caseload is at after-hours clinics. Um, it's a real challenge in that not only have the number of, of pets increased and pet ownership increased, but in the veterinary industry, we're also dealing with uh, staffing shortages and burnout. And so you've got both issues going on, and it's a real challenge. And I'm so thankful that uh, they were able to get your uh, your kitty in there <laughs> and you. take care. Uh, and from my experience, the emergency clinics are really working super, super hard. They're prioritizing cases and, and triaging and, and doing the very best they can with the resources they've got right now. But what about you, Dr. Stiles? <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Wimmers. It's nice to hear you from such Good a Good to hear from you again, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know what, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I'm in Montreal, so it's not that different here. We're seeing huge wait times for our um, emergency and uh, out-of-hour um, services. It really is a trickle-down effect. So, like Dr. Wimmer has mentioned, you know, because we're seeing staff shortages, and that's a multitude of reasons. Burnout has been an, an increasing problem in our profession. Uh, give that COVID and inefficiencies in practice and the stress of changing the way we work and doing curbside medicine, uh, people being off sick because or being off because they have to look after family members or because their children are being schooled at home, just so many factors leading to our staff shortage. So the regular practices are just unable to meet the need of even the general cases that we used to see, right? So, you know, it's a good example um, that you have, Leanne, that, you know, your cat normally would have been seen by a general practice and would not have needed to be seen by an emergency um, and an out-of-hours practice. So we're seeing that they're unable to meet the needs because we're fully booked and, and booking two out, in, you know, two weeks in advance. And the triaging of these cases has become very difficult. So they are ending up in ERs, which are also having the same problems everybody else is. It's good news that they got to see your cat. That's great because some of the hours are actually longer than what you've described. So it's, it's good news. They, and they managed to take your cat in, which I think is really a priority. They, they, they took in charge right away and, and gave the care your cat needed it to have immediately, even if you didn't quite get finished for six hours with a, with a result. Um, at least there was care. And that's, that's our priority for sure. Okay, uh, this is a very interesting conversation. We have to take another break, uh, and we'll be back with more on wait times and pressure on veterinarians and their staffs. Uh, it, it's sounding eerily like what's going on in the regular healthcare system for humans. Uh, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about wait times for veterinarians and uh, possibly as a result of the increased number of pets. And as we're hearing from our veterinarians on the line, also because of labor shortages. Uh, first, I'm going to take a call from Barbara in Aurelia. Hello, Barbara. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Go ahead. I run a cat shelter here in Aurelia, the Comfy Cat Shelter, and we are experiencing many problems, too. One, we have to wait a long time to take our animals in to get fixed. But the other problem that we're having is all these wonderful people who love their animals are waiting to get them into vets to get treated. They get into the vets and they find out the cost facts involved in taking care of their cats, especially older ones. We are now getting more and more senior animals being surrendered to our shelter 
because of the, the cost involved in taking care of them. I have a list right now of close to 100 animals that people want to surrender, and they're not always honest with us to say why they're surrendering them. So we're doing our best to help here, and unfortunately, we have to go out of town to get help. Our one that is in Barrie, one's in Aurora that helps us, and also we are um, not funded. We are um, dependent on our own fundraising. Our municipality doesn't give us money, and we're finding it really, really upsetting for the people who are, have to give up their animals, and we feel badly that we can't take them all. So it, everyone's suffering right at the moment, and um, I don't know where one goes. Um, we've, I just hope um, the vets are doing their very best, um, but I think we've got to sit down somewhere after all this is over and maybe work with the vets closer to get more low-cost clinics to help people or with spaying, or et cetera. But um, in the interim, we're all waiting for help. Okay, for- thanks, Barbara, for and your let, call. Let me, Leanne here, just to that point, um, when I did see, well, I would say that the emergency, uh, the trip to the emergency hospital was about a $500 cost. And the next day when I saw the vet, it was about $250. And um, I did get Lulu some blood work at the second vet, and he offered me the option between the geriatric blood work or the quote-unquote normal younger cat blood work uh, because we were deciding to uh, potentially do some dental procedures on her. But the vet said that she didn't necessarily need the results of the geriatric blood work, which would give you her kidney levels and thyroid, etc., to do what he thought might be necessary on her mouth, but it is extremely costly. It, but of course, you want to do as much as you possibly can to save your little fur baby. So, well, if you it, can afford it. It is. I've, I've talked to other people. It is extremely costly. I mean, do people take that into account enough when when they get a pet that it can be very costly, Doctor Wimmers? Um, we try and educate pet owners before they adopt or, or purchase pets on the uh, the costs of veterinary care. Uh, if things go well, wonderful. Uh, but when things go sideways and you need to come in for an emergency procedure or there, there's something else medically going on, the costs can increase. And so sometimes it's a shock to clients. And the OVMA has a, a fabulous chart that they put out every year, which outlines what potential costs are for owners, uh, even, say, in the first year with puppy and, and kitten ownership, you know, for vaccinations and spaying and, and neutering. And so the, the information's there. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times um, owners will think with their hearts and not their heads, and then uh, it, it becomes a bit of a challenge if uh, something goes wrong. Uh- Dr. Stiles, uh, what did you think of what we heard from uh, the woman who runs that shelter that people are, I mean, we were, we were afraid. I remember when there was this increase in pet ownership that pets would be abandoned just because people would go back to their old routines, which didn't include a pet. But now uh, we're seeing yet another bad consequence. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's very difficult because even myself here, we work with um, some rescues for, for cats, and, and we had to put a stop on helping the sterilizations that we do for them uh, during part of the pandemic because we just didn't, we couldn't even take care of our own patients. So I, I see that, and I, I really feel for them. I, I understand how difficult that is. The difficulty, of course, also is that the cost of veterinary care is significant. Um, we've been Many of our staff have been underpaid for a long time, especially our veterinary technicians. And so we're trying to make a change, just like we're seeing in the, in, in, in our healthcare as well for people, um, that it's time to elevate their livelihoods. They, they should not be sitting and, and, and barely able to, to meet their needs. So with that and with some of our inefficiencies as a result of COVID and needing to hire more support staff, most of us as veterinary clinics have needed to increase our fees because we're just trying to get by. And unfortunately, that is something that people are going to see. Um, it's not because we want to, it's because we, we have to. And I think like Dr. Wimmers mentioned, people need to start really considering this before they adopt or purchase. Um, and if they do, they should highly be encouraged 
you uh, have pet insurance. That is one way that some of these things um, can be, at least some of the costs can be offset if you have pet insurance. Uh, some being uh, the operative word. Dr. Wimmers, before when you were talking about the labor shortage, so we're just hearing that some of those uh, wages have to be increased. Uh, So is it a shortage of actual veterinarians or mostly the support staff? Both, actually. There's a significant shortage of veterinarians. The the WANTADs clinics looking for veterinarians in Ontario are at an all-time high and then technicians are equally as rare. And so there's a lot of competition for uh, a low number of uh, qualified uh, professionals. And same with support staff, getting qualified and, and competent reception and animal care assistance is a challenge. And so when there's that much competition, as Dr. Stiles mentioned, then you know we need to offer uh higher salaries in order to attract the, the quality um, staff that we need. And it's, it, it is a challenge. It truly is across the board. Well, yeah, and we were just talking earlier in the show about the general labor shortage in the province and the country and, frankly, the world. Yeah, uh, there's not a client that comes through that owns a small business that I'm talking to that they're not experiencing the same thing we are. Let's take a call from Steve in Brampton. Hi, Steve. Oh, hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Um, Go ahead. Okay, very simple. I want to talk for a minute about pet insurance and how it has helped me. Uh, When when we were children, I'm 70, and so in the 50s, you'd come home and your parents would tell you, oh, Spot ran away. And, And I think that's the time when Spot got into some serious costs and your parents just dealt with it. But anybody getting a puppy now, my dog is 13, uh, I tell them, number one, I recommend you get him in training, and number two, get pet insurance. Uh, my late wife wanted me to do this. I didn't want to do it because I think monthly expenses can pile up, but I'll tell you, for the first 10 years, I paid premiums and did nothing, but he's had some hefty, and I mean hefty, medical expenses in the last three years, and they're ongoing because he has conditions. I don't get 100% back, but I get a big chunk of it back. And it depends on how you set your policy, what you want your deductibles to be. So um, I, I'm very appreciative of the benefit of pet insurance, which, frankly, I thought was a joke before I got involved with it. And uh, it's, it's really helped me. And it, it makes the decisions about what I'm prepared to do for him a lot easier. He, I spent $10,000 on this dog a couple of years ago. Wow. He had a mass, of, you know, and, but, but he has ongoing conditions as well. And, you know, he's 13, but the vet tells me he's like a seven or eight year old dog. He's very healthy other than the conditions that he's on meds for. So uh, I just think, um, and also I've been with the same vet and off for the whole 13 years. So we're, we're on a first name basis. <laughs> okay, Steve, thank you for that. That's very useful information. Uh, okay, you're welcome. Thanks for that. I, I think that's probably a big problem that that people went ahead and, and got pets without taking this into account. I mean, that's very sad what the uh, woman from the shelter in Aurelia was telling us. That's terrible. Yeah. So, and I, I, I can just comment, too, that... Um, you know, I, although we know that pet insurance isn't for everyone, but certainly if you're considering adopting a younger pet and even an older pet, they may have some conditions they will not cover, but it may still cover quite a bit. Um, just so you know, I have pet insurance for my own dog. I got a puppy during COVID. I'm one of those puppy pandemic people. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I got insurance for her. She's a lab. She eats absolutely everything. And I didn't want to be having to make any choices that I wasn't comfortable with. I wanted to make sure that I could provide her with the best of the best from the best specialists out there if we needed to go grab some things she eated out of her belly. Um, I didn't want to have to think about that. So even vets and technicians and support staff, they work at vet clinics and they have insurance, a lot of them, for their pets. Dr. Wimmers, uh, uh, so what do you tell people in terms of what they should expect when they need a vet? That, uh, first of all, they should try and develop a relationship with a clinic. Um, that, that's important. Um, and then the second, 
be prepared for, depending on what you're uh, calling for, that you may have to wait. Uh, now, I can only speak personally from, from our clinics that we leave some extra space every day for emergency and urgent cases. And, you know, if the phone's really ringing off the hook, you know, we will double book, but we can't triple book, you know. So uh, we're doing the very best we can. So do expect some longer wait times. But I can also tell you that in speaking with veterinarians across the province and, you know, you know Dr. Stiles is in Montreal and, and other veterinarians I speak with, we're all doing our very, very best to accommodate the urgent and the emergency cases. Leanne, are you doing ever, anything uh, different in the wake of this? Are you looking for a, a, a GP or a GV for Lula, <laughs> a Lulu, or, uh, or are you getting insurance? Or uh, you well, uh, no, I, I'm, I don't plan on getting insurance. Although I was actually wondering if, if CARP offered a, a special rate on pet insurance, um, <laughs> which is something I might speak to our, our gang about. Um, but I am developing now a relationship with the, uh, the wonderful vet of the Usher Animal Hospital, Dr. Gay, uh, Justin Gay, and uh, he was he was he was wonderful to deal with and uh, gave me great advice. So I will be doing that going forward now that she is getting into her high Zoomer age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's good to hear and. Uh, Dr. Stiles, what, what percentage would you say of your practice are people with new pets, pandemic pets like you have? Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult to look at true numbers because although we have this feeling that there might be more, there's, there may not be actually true evidence that there's a lot more, but we figure there's probably upwards of about a 10% increase. Um, and I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when, when we were already busy, as we've mentioned before, and, and, uh, that disparity was already there, um, it, it does put a lot of pressure on us. Um, but I think our bigger concerns are things around, you know, the health of our, our own teams and making sure that they are safe and happy and healthy and able to provide the care that we all want to for the pets that are out there. So, um, one of my last comments might be, be kind to your veterinarian and their team because they really are doing everything they can. And just like Dr. Wimmer said, you know, we're, we're, we're putting aside times to see those special cases and be available uh, so that they don't all end up in emergencies, but uh, develop that relationship and, and talk to them. They're there to help you. And Dr. Wimmer's last word to you. One thing that we, we haven't touched on and it's, in its relative infancy in veterinary medicine is telemedicine. And so uh, that's something that many of us are starting to look into and that we're hoping might alleviate some of the, the pressure to actually physically come into the clinics. And so we're, we're figuring it out and um, that might be something that you we'll be talking about in the next uh, couple of years. Okay, but, well, uh, uh, we, we will have to leave that for another segment because we're out of time. This was very useful information. Thanks so much, Dr. Albert Wimmers, Dr. Enid Stiles, and Leanne Wright, and Lulu. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks so much. Hope you have a great thank day. You. Okay, thank you. Thanks. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel, and today we'll be talking apologies. Yesterday, we heard Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's latest mea culpa over his failure to show up on our first ever National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And should Doug Ford apologize for those comments about immigrants? Also yesterday, as you heard in Bob's News, he opined that if they, quote, work their tails off, they're welcome, but he cautioned if they're coming to, quote, collect the dole and sit around, not happening. Here's what Christine Elliott, the health minister, had to say about it. What Prince Ford was saying was that we 
need more people to do the jobs that we have available here in Ontario. And so we encourage more immigration. We need more people in Ontario. We need more people to come from other jurisdictions. We welcome that. And we know that when people come here, they do work hard. They do work hard for themselves, for their families, for their communities. And so we welcome that. That is what the Premier intended to indicate yesterday. Okay, well, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Though you, you've got to wonder why he actually went there in those comments. But let's see what the panel has to say. Now, I would like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, conservative strategist and senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard Hodge. I wrote and filling in today our old friend and colleague Charles Bird, <laughs> liberal strategist and managing principal at Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hi everyone. Hi Charles. Hey, 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 hey. I hey, haven't seen hey, you guys Charles. since that weekend in Vegas when John lost a tooth. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Exactly. Sorry. (laughs) Have I missed out on something interesting here? (laughs) (laughs) I found it, Charles, for the the record. (laughs) Okay, well, Charles, let us begin with you and those Doug Ford comments. What do you make of them? Oh, um, dumb, (laughs) ill-advised. Um, but I, I'm left to wonder, you know, if this was just a, a Doug Ford moment or whether he, you know, as we enter the pre-election phase, because, I mean, six months from now, we're going to be into a rip period for the Ontario election. And I'm wondering if he's posturing a little bit in terms of uh, a tougher persona, which I know a lot of folks like and appreciate, even if it is racially and culturally insensitive from time to time. And whether we'll, we're likely to see more of this or whether it's going to be more the, the kindler, gentler Doug Ford that emerged during the pandemic, um, it's difficult to say. I mean, I know Aaron O'Toole faced a lot of criticism for running too much like a liberal, um, and it may end up costing him the federal leadership. But um, so whether whether the premier is adopting a different tact, I guess time will tell if we see sort of repetitions of this kind of uh, excessive rhetoric. Karen, uh, what do you think? I mean, there are people who are wondering, you know, was it a dog whistle of some kind or just, uh, you know, uh, an unnecessary, as Charles said, dumb thing to say? Yeah, I kind of fall in the camp that this was Ford off script. And uh, I don't I don't think anybody thinks that Doug Ford is anti-immigration or anti-immigrant or um, I, I, it's just that's not, I mean, he, he says silly things, and I don't know why he said what he said, but I, I think it was just in a moment of being unscripted, as opposed to anything deeper or setting a tone for the election up ahead. I, I think it was really just a misstep. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, he could apologize for just being, like, for saying something stupid, but I don't, I don't think he, I don't think he, I, I think it's a bit of a stretch to suggest that he's um, making slights against immigrants. I, I think that's a bit of a stretch from what he said. John, should he apologize for uh, misspeaking? I think that's uh, one of the terms for it. <laughs> well, in the famous words, as my panelists would would, would understand it and appreciate what the what the premier meant to say was, uh, <laughs> 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 um, <clears throat> I think that you know, and, and and Karen is absolutely right. There's there's no one that would ever believe that that he or Rob, uh, the former former you know late Rob, would ever be anti immigrant. In fact they're they're and, and the Premier said this in, in the in question period today. And it's true for those of us that have been to Ford Fest and have seen Ford Nation grow. Uh the vast majority of those who supported the premier, uh, quite frankly, when he was a councillor and now when he's premier, were, were those that, that came from other countries, were immigrants. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, my parents, when they were alive, were big supporters of them because, you know, they knew that, that if there was any, anybody that would ever call back uh, or, you know, knock on their door on something, it would have been one of the Fords. It would have been Doug Ford. So I think that what he, he was obviously trying to say that the province 
is in desperate need of skilled and unskilled workers. And there's a lot of labor shortages that are happening, and and Ontario has been has been a, a huge province. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter which government has been in place, but they've always been a huge re- recipient of of immigrants and skilled workers, and and that needs to continue, especially now with the pandemic. Uh, and some of the issues that have happened, uh, and the Ontario Immigrant Nominee Program is 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 effective, but it's but it's oversubscribed. So I think a lot of that, I think he was trying to emulate the fact that hey, look, we want people to come, we want them to come and work hard. Uh, I think it was it was just you know not said well, um, and uh, I don't think he needs to apologize. I think people understand that that what he what he tried to say, and and he made it clear that he is very much pro immigrant uh, immigration. Uh, and will do his best, and as always has done his best, to make sure that those who do come to Canada and Ontario will try to get a fair share and 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 their uh, opportunity to uh, to live a prosperous life, like my parents and others have in the past. Uh, from the uh, what the premier meant to say file, um, <laughs> I'm wondering: was he giving a nod? There are a lot of people in the business community who. Uh, say that these labor shortages, one of the big reasons for them is that people are doing very well on the CERB, sometimes better than they did in their jobs. And we are undergoing what is being called in, in general it, throughout North America, the big quit. And Charles, if there's any group uh, that I have heard uh, targeted or uh, being tarred with that, it's uh, probably young people. So do you think he was trying to, I don't know, talk to the business people who, who think that that's a big problem? Yeah, I, I suppose that's one possibility. But I think anyone with a titter of wit understands that the economy underwent a, an enormous contraction over the course of uh, the first year of the pandemic. I can't believe we're talking in terms of years. And um, we saw a lot of jobs lost, um, a lot of uh, production uh, curtailed. And what's happening now is as as the economy is rebounding back out of the um, the COVID recession, we're seeing a lot of shortfalls in terms of not only uh, labor availability as businesses start to ramp back up, but we're also seeing definite impacts on supply chains and tankers and uh, shipping containers stuck at major ports around the world. And, and this is a global phenomenon, and it is part of the you know ten thousand repercussions of the pandemic through which we've lived. And the the, the labor shortage in Ontario is is really. Um, uh, it's most keenly felt in areas of skilled trades. Um, and uh, it speaks, again, to the rebounding economy, but it has very little to do with the electrician who's decided staying home on CERB is the way to go. I can't imagine that it would be an electrician because an electrician would make a lot more money than CERB. But if yeah. you're talking seriously, uh, all, all those people in those skilled trades um, who, by the way, we cannot convince to come and do our pathetic little jobs, uh, they're doing really, really well. But it certainly could impact a restaurant worker or somebody in retail or or someone else. And, and Karen, you know, for a long time, I, I think you have trouble getting staff as well. And lots of people in the business community are saying it's because the benefits are perhaps too generous. For sure. When you're looking at part-time labor, there's no question that it's more advantageous to, to not go back than to collect the, the subsidies that are being given, the benefits that are being given out now. And also, you know, hard work. Like if you're working in a long-term care home part-time, maybe you don't want to go back to that. And there's also some structural things that have emerged. Like a lot of things were canceled over the last 18 months that were skill development courses and, you know, things that you can't learn online. And it's a small example, but and I think I've mentioned we can't hire lifeguards because we haven't run any lifeguard certification courses for 18 months. And so we don't have that next entry of lifeguards. And the people that were lifeguards have now gone on to do different things. And so there's, there's lots of things that aren't making sense right now in terms of labor shortages, high unemployment, um, and, and yet high, high need for workers. And we're not, I don't think anybody actually understands why that's the case. Some of it is because for part-time workers, for sure, they would rather get the benefit. But it, 
it, it's still it's still not making sense to people, and I don't think it's making sense to Ford. And I think maybe maybe it was just oh, I'm going to talk tough and maybe get people encourage people to go back to work. I don't think so because I think that's even he. I, I don't I don't think that's maybe part of the issue, but not not the real issue. But but there's no question, as Charles mentioned, like it's a very strange economy. And anybody who says that they know what's going on, I don't think it's telling the absolute <laughs> full picture. Well, <laughs> it's, it's we don't know. We don't know. Well, and and it's interesting, you know, uh, some of the things that I've been reading about it, and again, not just in Canada, is, is you know, people have been home and they've reevaluated what they want from life. Yeah. Uh, John, I mean, you know, what we see announcements from the government every day. We are helping this group, uh, we're helping the skilled trades, we're promoting this and that. But, um, you know, uh, it, it, there's a huge labor shortage. Well, there is. And and, and, and without a doubt, you know, it, it's as a result of the pandemic. And as you mentioned, be quite frankly, a lot of people are reassessing and and reevaluating. You know, the pandemic has had a, such a profound effect on, on people, on businesses, on families, uh, you know, I, you know, we all hear stories of folks who have moved out of the city into into um, suburban and rural areas because they just they just they were just tired of, of living in the city and and felt safer by by some means to to do that. So those are those are profound changes that people have had. Jobs have been lost. You know, companies have downsized, and and now even you know there was a there was a news story the other day about the path system uh, in downtown Toronto. That, as you know, oh, as we all know. Uh, that is that is absolutely hurting, and 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 not only the the path system, but the the, the retailers within the path system who have seen such a drop in 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 uh, um, in traffic and people traffic there that they have to now rebrand themselves. Some of them have lost. So all of these changes, and I think what governments have done, and we've talked about it on the, on the show for the last year, as as Charles says, we're talking about pandemic in in years, not not months. Um, you know, the the money that governments gave to businesses and individuals absolutely helped. What I'm sort of happy about and quite frankly pleased about is that the last the last month, I think, the numbers of job numbers across Canada, every province had increased almost to pre-pandemic limits or uh, uh, pre-pandemic rates. So I think from that perspective, you know, companies are trying to hire back. They're trying to get folks back. People are getting accepting jobs. That's all good news. But without a doubt, you know, there's still some and, and the skills trade especially, I think, is where the focus has to be. And that's where a lot of folks who, who uh, are immigrating to Canada and to Ontario that have those skills can absolutely be put to work uh, and would do phenomenal jobs, I'm sure, as we've seen in the past. Let's take a couple of calls about those comments. We've got Siva in Guelph. Hi, Siva. Hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call and for all the good work you do. Thank um, you. I appreciate special with the seniors, which I guess I'm qualified in as a senior, uh, but the reason I'm calling is, is regarding to immigration, as you can tell by my accent. Yes, I am an immigrant, but I also am Canadian in heart and soul, and I have been here for 50 years. Now I'm thinking to leave because of the what happened to the seniors and the long-term care. Oh, dear. Uh, and I'm very disappointed because I loved Canada, the Canada I came to. The people, the country is just beautiful have everything beautiful, but it has changed a lot. And the is not the COVID because it had to do 30 years of bad treatment to the seniors. And I don't think it's going to get better. If it's going to take five years for air condition, I can imagine the rest. But is a gentleman there who's saying Ford is dumb. So I am dumb too. And I consider myself dumb now in his, in his mind. Because he said what he said was done. No, I agree with him. I'm not a conservative. I'm not a bias. I'm a straightforward and very transparent. Is yes, I came here and like in a time in the uh, early seventies, where was uh, Greeks, Portuguese, Italians, and we worked. We want to be Canadian. We want to integrate. And the first job that came, you went and for to make money to survive and that's what we all did i have a young lady work with me in the biggest institution she said her mother was one time ate bread with ketchup ketchup she was from italy so we all work i went to work at night taking the train 
got lost many times, come home about midnight and uh, doing uh, green uh, buildings at night and was scared. I was 19 years old with a red hair. So, you know, I agree with him. We come over here to contribute like the settlers did, contribute and also be Canadian, but you enjoy all the freedom. I, I have culture if I want to celebrate okay, or Siva. relations. So that's that's what it is. We come to contribute and make this country better and better and better. Okay, Siva. Thank you very much for that. Uh, let's get a quick call from Pat. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. Uh, I wanted to get a comment in yesterday when you were talking about the uh, the funding uh, and of, L, of of seniors. And it ties right in with the lady's comment with regard to uh, how we are looking after people in long-term well, care. Uh, yeah, but, but Pat... <laughs> yeah, but, okay, but I'm just saying we're, I agree we're, with we're that. We're talking about immigration and the Okay, okay. I, I'll let, I just want to say I agree with her thing, and Kathleen Wood had, had a solution. The, the point on immigration, we haven't reproduced ourselves since 1972, uh, and... It is easy in many ways to immigrate to Canada if you've got skills. If you spend two years at a community college, you have the ability to have uh, to work in Canada, and I think that's a great thing, and it's providing serious dollars for universities and, and uh, community colleges. Okay, Pat, thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> people, that's why we have a free-for-all Friday. <laughs> you can talk about whatever you want to talk about, but let's try to stay on topic Libby. instead of jumping around all over the place. Libby, um, let me just uh, let me just say just quickly on on your on the ladies on your on the, the first caller's uh, comments uh, on the woman's first call about about immigration, and, and and she's so right about the fact that you know um, you know and I, and I speak with experience about my parents who came here in the 1960s who got their first jobs that they, they were able to get. You know, my dad was working in a steel mill and my mom had a dry cleaners. And they stayed in those jobs until they retired, which I think a lot of immigrants of that generation did, um, which, which helped build this country. So I, I totally hear what, what she was saying. My, uh, my father's first job here, he was a presser of pleats in a factory. He went on into the shoe business and my mother worked in a restaurant until she retired and she yeah. was, uh, an extremely smart woman, uh, as was my dad. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we all have these immigrant stories, but you know what? When I, when I walk around and I see some of the current immigrants, well, Sir sure looks to me like they're working hard and frankly in jobs that most of us wouldn't want. So, yeah. you know, you have to wonder where, where that comment came from. Uh, and, you know, a final thing about the labor shortage, and we were talking about this in the Zoomer squad yesterday, and that it might be a very good thing for Zoomers, for people over 65 who want to keep working, who possibly have to keep working to some degree, because maybe a labor shortage will uh, end uh, some of the uh, ageism in hiring. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good retail stores and, and other businesses that actually do make a point of hiring um, uh, those that are a bit more seasoned uh, in, in life um, than, uh, than, than some of us. So that's, that's a good thing. Okay, I'm going to take one more comment on Doug Ford's uh, comments, and I hope, Bonnie and Kitchener, that that's actually what you're going to talk about. Bonnie? Hi there. I just uh, want to say that I don't think Doug Ford was trying to be racist or anything like that. I think he was just being straightforward, like just being honest. There are a lot of jobs out there that need to be filled if we're ever going to get back on our feet. Okay. Uh, and uh, so, and uh, I think we're all, like, there's good and there's bad workers in any race. Um, am I allowed to say something about the um, people looking for jobs? Uh, uh, very quickly, Bonnie. I uh, just wondered, uh, they're wondering, places are wondering why they're having trouble getting help. But most of the jobs I see advertised are under under $20 an hour. And I just am curious where folks would live with the rents and the housing prices and that if they like to eat on the side, too, at these wages. That's 
that's probably a huge problem. Well, yeah, exactly. I don't think they're living in Toronto. Bonnie, thanks for your call. Um, yeah, all of like these Bonnie. big, big <laughs> problems. Um, and moving right along on the apology file, um, what about uh, Justin Trudeau yesterday? I mean, he really got a kind of verbal spanking from uh, Chief Casimir out in B.C. Uh, Karen? Yeah, and I, I think when we're talking about apologies, like there are times that you need to apologize and there's times that you don't. And this is one of those times that, you know what, he 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 needed to say he was sorry because he really, that was a major mistake. And, um, you know, I, I think that he, to be, he, he needs to be held accountable. And, and I think that was done. And I think that was good because, you know, it's, we're, we're working through our reconciliation process as a nation. And we don't know, we actually don't know what the path looks like. We don't know when we've arrived. And it's obviously an ongoing thing. There's no question. But, you know, even the small little things about, you know, and I say small little things, but like, what, what is the path to raise the flex? And we don't know what that path is. And it's, uh, you know, the, the acts of not showing up on the Truth and Reconciliation Day for the, the first day that his government created, that's a huge setback in that process. Uh, yeah, so, it, and it really, again, it boggled the mind, you know. Totally boggled wh- the mind. Like, what, rookie, what was like, he what thinking? What was he thinking? Or not thinking, and and like, how did how did that how did his own team let that happen? And so I think it was if you're going to make an apology, that's the apology to make. And I think he was rightly um, held accountable for that for that poor decision. Well, and it, it wasn't the first time he apologized for that. Um, Charles Bird is is it going to be the last time he has to apologize for that? Oh, listen, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it still boggles the mind how he found himself in that situation of not, you know, formally marking the first day of national reconciliation. And I can imagine the, the briefing he must have got before, before the meeting. Um, you know, it's like, Prime Minister, you're having lunch with Chief Casimir. The menu will be humble pie, and you're going to eat every bit of it. And uh, you're going to be the cont- most contrite so and so that ever lived, and and he did get a beating, and uh, and quite rightly. But it's it's also important to remember what First Nation leaders were also talking about yesterday, which is um, Indigenous people want justice for what happened to those murdered and missing children. They want criminal proceedings against those that can still be held responsible and found guilty of crimes, because you know we're talking about thousands children over the course of many years but is there any doubt in anyone's mind that some of these kids were murdered and there was just zero by way of appropriate legal follow-up and uh and recourse to the law um i mean those are the bigger issues so notwithstanding you know an oversight on the part of the prime minister it's important to keep our eye on the ball yeah yeah um Still uh, with Justin Trudeau. So uh, we're getting a new cabinet next week, I think. Uh, and uh, yeah, the 26th, that's next Monday. Uh, so, John, uh, any thoughts? I mean, there was some thought that maybe uh, some of the le- lesser performing ministers might go. I'm talking about Patty Haidu, the health minister, and Harjit Sajjan, the defense minister. Well, those are two I think that ought to go and should go, and and likely will probably be other uh, reshuffled to another another portfolio. This is all speculation, of course. This is the kind of business that we're all in is, is speculating. We don't know, and but but I would say though, just from from history um, uh, and from the previous administration, you know, th- those two ministers, Minister Hagen and, and Haiti, were probably the weakest of, of all of the ministers, quite frankly, and they hold the, the two most powerful positions. Uh, next to finance, and obviously the Prime Minister wanted to get out early uh, and say that Christian Friedland will remain as Deputy Prime Minister and finance for stability purposes. I thought that was appropriate, and, and obviously she's done a pretty good job and is one of, the, one of the ones that he has the most confidence in. But those two portfolios, health especially, uh, is going to be one that is going to be pivotal as we get into the next phase uh, of this. And, and I don't think she's done a particularly good job. So it's going to be important. He also wants to make sure that the cabinet is gender uh, neutral or, par- or has a uh, gender parity, uh, which I think is probably why it's taken some time. Uh, and, and as a result of the election that we shouldn't have never had, that we had, he lost a, a number of, of cabinet ministers uh, who, who were women. 
cabinet minister. So it's it's going to it's going to be an interesting one to see. I think the interesting portfolio is going to be the portfolio on indigenous relations and who he puts there. Uh, there was some suggestion that he may very well want to keep it himself, uh, just to show how much how important it is, given the debacle that that we we just talked about just just seconds ago. Um, but that'll be an important portfolio as well, and a lot of um, uh, leaders in the indigenous community will be seeing who he puts in that portfolio to see if if it's quite serious as to what he wants to do and how he wants to. Uh, uh, evolve the, the truth and reconciliation because Charles is absolutely right. We lost focus of that, Libby, because he decided to take a vacation on the day, the first day of Truth, truth and Reconciliation Day. Uh, but we should be focusing on what, you know, on resolving the issues and, and getting to, to reconciliation, which, you know, as, as the Prime Minister said yesterday, as, as he was getting eviscerated, the path to reconciliation is through truth. And that's the one thing that we all have to sort of keep in mind, especially government leaders. And uh, Carolyn Bennett is not exactly uh, uh, getting huge reviews, and she's been in that portfolio for a while. Way too long. Way too long. Charles, uh, I'm going to give the last answer to you. So there's uh, the Carolyn Bennett question, but also one of the bits of speculation is that former broadcaster Marcy Ian in Toronto Centre could be up for one of those cabinet posts. Yeah, well, um, there are four ministers, female from the last government who either didn't run again or were defeated. And so that's going to necessitate some new faces joining the cabinet, predominantly female. Um, and once you start adding ministers, you know, you can cause a cascading effect. With regards to Carolyn Bennett, I think she's terrific. She shares the Indigenous Affairs file with another amazing Quebec MP by the name of Mark Miller. And that points to a real problem the prime minister has, because if you, if you look at folks like Mark Miller at indigenous services and John Wilkinson at environment, these are people who on the one hand, you know, might be due a a promotion quote unquote, but on the other hand, you know, they're, they're on top of really, really important portfolios that are key to the prime minister's agenda going forward. And do you really want to move them? So, you know, if, if, but the problem is that once you start adding new ministers and replacing existing ministers, you get a cascading effect. And so I think there's two things that are going to happen. One, you're going to see new faces in about half of the cabinet portfolios. And two, you're probably going to see a larger cabinet um, just to accommodate the, the new people coming in. Does Marcy get in? Yes, absolutely. She's dynamite. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, she's an acquaintance. She was a broadcaster for many years, so we kind of see her around. Um, yeah, she's made a great impression um, just in, in, in the few short months before the general election because she was elected in the by-election um, some months ago. Okay, uh, we are actually over time. Uh, Charles, it was so nice to have you back. <laughs> I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank well, you. Well, come back sometimes. <laughs> I know you're busy. And I, I don't, I'm almost have to say any time, but uh, Charles, the other Charles is doing a great job. I the other Charles is doing Charles. a great job. Uh, and thank you so much to our stalwart regulars, John Capobianco and Karen Stintz. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Talk next week. Okay, talk next week. Right now we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, have you tried to take your pet to a vet lately? What were the wait times like? What's going on with that? Well, it's a ripple effect from all those people who decided to get pets during the pandemic. We'll have the latest on that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.